Colin. Sorry, I need to I need to respond to what Fausto just said. Apparently, so I, I went out with a bunch of new friends, and I was very drunk, and apparently the first impression that a bunch of them had was me shouting across the room when someone asked me something about football. I don't remember this, but apparently I shouted across the room, I'm queer, I don't care about sports. All right, thank you. Con- congratulations, Colin. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. Hello. 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 It's the book club at the end of the universe. I'm Jeremy Oder, and I am frankly astonished to find that you've made it thus far, dear listeners. I'm Colin Carlson, and there's more bacteria in my throat than usual, and I'm sorry. I'm Fausto Bustos, and I almost once got run over by the presidential motorcade. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for joining us, everyone. This is episode four. I'm a great fan of science, you know. And we're discussing chapters 19 through 28 of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. Uh, can, you, can you recap us, Jeremy? You're the only one who ever knows what's going on. <laughs> okay. So uh, when we left our heroes, they had, they had saved themselves from the attack of the Magrathian automated defense system. And they've landed on the planet's surface. Uh, they wander out into the remains of the, the sperm whale that, that crash-landed after they transmuted it from an attack missile and find a way into the, into the planet. They've, they've cracked open some of the passageways under the surface. So Ford and Zaphod and Trillian uh, wander down into the ruins of the Magrathian civilization and leave Arthur and, and Marvin, the, the depressive robot, back at the ship. Zaphod explains to Ford that he has been bothered by the fact that he keeps doing things like stealing hyper-advanced hyper starships and going to look for long-dead planet-building civilizations for no reason that he can understand, except that they keep working when he does them. Um, and he started, in a very kind of paranoid fashion, doing brain scans on both of his brains and discovered that they had been surgically altered and that there are parts of his brains that are walled off from the rest of his consciousness. And so, whoever did it, carved their initials into into his own synapses, and those initials are, in fact, ZB. Arthur is hanging around feeling sorry for himself, and he he is discovered by a, a Magrathian by the name of Slarta Bartfast, who takes him into the planet and basically gives him the backstory for everything that has happened up to now. It turns out that the Magrathians were contracted to build the Earth, quite some time ago. Uh, this is because a, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings set out to discover the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So they built a very, very powerful computer called Deep Thought and asked it, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? So Deep Thought, Deep Thought thinks about it for actually quite a long time and comes up with the world-shattering answer 42. And this is obviously underwhelming, but the but Deep Thought explains that the reason it's underwhelming is that nobody knows what the question of life, the universe, and everything is. And to figure out the question, they're going to need an even more powerful computer, uh, which is, in fact, going to have to be the size of a planet and will have to be powered by the very lives of the biological organisms that exist on that planet. And that planet will be the Earth. 
So Magrathia took the contract to build the planet Earth as a computer for uh, figuring out the, the question of life, the universe, and everything. So that's, that's the big revelation. That's the punchline of the book. So we, we have some ominous background developments about why everything is happening, and we have uh, the revelation that the Earth is basically a glorified calculator. Abacus. Abacus. Counting device. And that's where, that's where we are today. Um, so can we jump in with something kind of abstract? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we can get to the question, we can get to the answer, and we can get to all that in a second. But I guess, um, sort of on a broader note, there's a, there's a presupposition here, right? Which is that at a certain level of consciousness and at a certain level of, like, maybe social organization, um... You start to wonder what the purpose of the universe is, right? There's this this implication that at some level, that becomes the question that you're asking. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I just I've never picked up on that previously when I read this as like an, an implicit assumption. But it's because like why why should it be right? Like why should there be? Because because in my mind that that kind of questioning and that kind of line of reasoning comes from a very like earth-based conventional theological worldview, right? Like if you if you if you cleared out the history of like all like religion and spirituality on earth and you restarted with just like a, a set of physics textbooks. Uh-huh. So Elon Musk goes to Mars and he accidentally <laughs> on purpose only brings new atheists. So it's Elon Musk and Steven Pinker and all of the other assholes on Mars. So after and, and after the demographic collapse, who colonizes? Right. Um, like, do you do you think that there's? I don't. I don't feel like the question would necessarily become. You know, what is the purpose of life, the universe, and everything? I feel like it's such a it's such a theological way to approach it. You think there are? You think there are alien intelligences that we would recognize as? intelligences that would not wonder about why they are where they are. Well, so, but it's, it's not about why, why you yourself are, right? It's not like, why do human beings exist? Why does consciousness exist? It's what's the point of everything? Like, what is the grand intention of all of it? Like, I, I think you can have a question that's like, what am I supposed to do with my life? That has nothing to do with anything around you. I can I can wonder what I'm supposed to, what I should do with my life and and struggle with meaning in my life without ever once stepping back and really thinking about the fact that I'm a couple pieces of dust on a rock floating through the infinite void. You're saying you're saying there is not in fact an ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything, but there might be answers to life, comma, the universe, comma and everything. Well, get get I don't know about that. Most to me, it sounds like Colin is saying that it's a very human and to a certain degree religious point of view that asks, well, what is the point of everything? And that religion has an answer for that. And I think Colin is, and correct me if I'm wrong, getting at that there are, we can imagine some being in the, in the known and unknown universe asking a question similar to this, but without necessarily wrapping it up in in the context of there being a finite answer. 
I also think it's top down versus bottom up. So you can imagine if you started from scratch, you might start with what is the meaning of my life? What is what is the purpose of this group of people that I'm in? What is the purpose of this society? And you sort of build it up to, you know, mm -hmm. incrementally. Um, whereas the framing of life, the universe, and everything is very much like there's some grand magnate that all of this falls under. What is it? Mm -hmm. Like the idea that your individual purpose has to derive from or is a subset of a corollary of a broader purpose. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I think you're right. It, it's getting needlessly messianic. Yeah, I, I'm glibly quoting the text, but I know I, you're actually right. It's just it's interesting to me because Douglas Adams was an atheist. You know, he wrote about atheism. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff that he wrote was. I know that he was friends with Richard Dawkins, and but that was before you know, Dawkins' real asshole period. Yeah. You know, we're all friends with people who take a turn for the worse. Um, who am I to judge? But, um, but yeah, it's, just, it's so interesting to me that, you know, for someone who literally wrote, like, the famous quote about atheism, you know, why, can't you see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe there are fairies at the bottom of it? Right. Um, but so much of this work revolves around this idea of a broader meaning to things. So maybe, maybe it's meant to poke fun at it. Maybe it's a... It's sort of a, a a parody of it almost. Well, I know. I think it's actually. I think it's actually very much in line with uh, the broader worldview of for what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, the new atheism, which is this idea that, okay, yes, humans humans are on some level just hardwired to look for look for fairies at the bottom of the garden, but we're better than that. We're overcoming our our ancestry. Sort of at the same time, they disavow that pursuit. They also they also acknowledge it as a fundamental driver of human psychology. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's because the more that you zoom out, right, it, it just kind of becomes harder and harder to talk in the abstract. Right. No, but I agree. I agree that like it's certainly it's certainly possible to conceive of a an ultimate answer to life that is not an ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. Interesting. Okay, I can I can I can settle with that as a resolution to this. Yeah, that that seems workable. Well, right. So I I mean I oh. correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought what you were getting at is that there is like meaning that we make for ourselves, and then there is trying to come up with some sort of cosmic purpose for everything around us. And they're not. They're you're right. They're not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I was trying to get to conceptually. I wasn't there, but that's where I was headed with it. I will say as sort of one closing interesting thought in the discussion, and I've been silent because I was looking for this line in the book, mm -hmm. um, but in the earlier discussion where the two philosophers come in, right, and they start arguing with the engineers, there's a line that they say saying, under the law, the quest for ultimate truth is quite clearly the inalienable prerogative of your working thinkers. Any bloody machine goes and actually finds it, and we're straight out of a job, aren't we? Right. So this um, is this is the philosophers in the society that built deep thought, complaining about complaining about deep thought taking their job. Yes, but there's also a question of whether they've misunderstood. They view their prerogative as the quest for ultimate truth, and it's not clear that that actually coincides to the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, which is sort of what we're getting at the humanization of, well, what is the point to everything mm -hmm. does not 
necessarily mean that the question and the answer to life, the universe, and everything is sort of um, in line with this human yearning, at least historical human yearning, for ultimate truth, whatever form that may or may not be in. Did I go too off too off the deep end there? I'm sorry. I'm thinking about dinosaurs again, so I can't meaningfully meaningfully contribute to this. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Can I can I pivot to a detail? Okay. Chapter twenty six. I'd like to draw your attention to something Slarda Bartfast says. I'm afraid we haven't even finished burying the artificial dinosaur skeletons in the crust yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the big part. So, are they just doing a backup to the last save point? Or is... Well, there is no save point. They're just... It's clear that they need humans in order to make the machine work. Right. But so, okay, but so... I interpret this as human existence has to be redone. Right, but in the first run that they did, did they were the dinosaurs artificial then too? They give us a timeline for the for the time it takes the Earth to compute the the answer, right? And it's not enough time so, for the history uh, of life as we understand it. It's seven and a half million years. Yeah, so that doesn't even get so, you out of the last interglacial. Yeah. So is evolution Hey, is evolution real in the universe of this book? It is, I think, but it's not real on Earth. That's troubling. Yeah. It's artificial. Yes. So cool so boy. apparently the idea is that something about there being a an actual evolved billion-year history of of life on the planet is necessary for the computation of the answer. Okay, I have another question. So the dinosaur skeletons are artificial, but do they just have the ability to create life? So, like, there are humanoid life forms all around the universe, mm-hmm. right? Like, Florida Barnabas is presumably basically human. Like, Ford, you know, Ford is out there fucking between, like, the end of book two and, like, the start of book five. He's fucking across the galaxy. He's fucking things that are human. He's fucking things that aren't. Ford has been doing plenty of fucking. Zaphod presumably has had sex with like a nice rock at some point. I'm I'm getting lost in that. I'm thought. not sure anyway. why this is relevant to the career. Well, <laughs> to the so my my point my point is that you could probably take some of the humans from the universe and just throw them on Earth and be like, "This is what we're doing now." Mm-hmm. But did they create all of the all of the species, like the billions of species on Earth? Like, if the Earth is only seven and a half million years old, Mm -hmm. and everything is artificial and no biological evolution, okay, fine, no macroevolution, I'm sorry, I I felt that comment coming before you could even get it out, no macroevolution took place, Um, yes, I know that macroevolution can take place in seven and a half million years, anyway... I'm locked in an argument with you and you won't even respond to I, me. You're doing so well without me, Colin. <laughs> um, but where did the other, you know, five billion species on Earth come from? 
do they create can they create life i would assume so if they can create entire planets because i feel like that's the headline and they didn't lead with it yeah yeah a planet's just a big rock but nowhere else in any of the books has it ever addressed that the, the idea that you could create life. Like, they struggled to make a cup of tea earlier in this book. Like, do they have the technology to do that? Uh, Are you suggesting that that the novel leaves open the possibility of artificial, or no, not artificial intelligence, uh, of creationism? Well, so so that's sort of where I'm going with this is if the, if 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 Slardabart Bath is creating planets, and he's creating life, if he's engineering out of the nothingness five billion species of life on Earth, isn't he basically a god by any reasonable working definition? Yep, checks out. I would I would assume that the ability to create a planet is pretty godlike. Yes. That's pretty up there. See, because in, in all of my previous reads of this, I felt like it's very much like, um, you guys seen Men in Black? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know at the end of Men in Black when it when it's like there's like the there's like that little civilization inside the guy's locker, but then it turns out that we're all in someone's locker, and then it's like and yeah. it's even bigger locker, and we're all just in the post office, and no, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's this implication that it's just that like technology and our sense of scale is very off and life is infinite in its varying sizes and scales and diversities. And it's all been very like science based. Now, if they can just straight up fucking create life, that feels very different to me. I mean, any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean the 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 prospect is that Organic life is part of the computational matrix, so I don't see how you get around basically designing evolution to happen. Did Slarda Bartfast create humans in his own image? I think that's what we're coming around to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I... Oh, wait, okay, so taking this one step further, what is the Bible in this scenario? What? What? Is is the Bible in this scenario strictly speaking is the Old Testament true? <laughs> is the Old Testament compatible with a literal reading of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah, of, of Hitchhiker's where Slardabart passed as God. Well, no, because because the uh, the the genealogies in Genesis don't fit in a seven and a half million year time span. That is very true. <laughs> you got me there. If, we're, if, if the seven, if seven and a half million years is the, the, the time point at which creation has to happen, then no, it is not. It is. The Bible is incompatible with that timeline. All those. So is all of science. I would like to point out, Colin, that you are surprisingly not unnerved by the possibility that all of human existence is fake news, that we're a fake species, that our entire existence of what it means to be human makes no sense. 
I think that's like the first reading like way of it fucks you up because this is your first time through the book and like I remember the first time that I read it I was also alarmed by that certainly like is, is that your big punchline from these chapters no I I just read it and thought that was really cool and then kept going I didn't sit down to ponder the metaphysics of it if you think about it it's actually yes the history of humanity is is sort of uh, just a big calculation effort, but it's also a calculation effort in the service of finding the meaning of the universe. The Earth is a device for understanding the meaning of life, which is kind of deep in a in a whoa dude sort of way. I mean, it was interesting to sort of conceptualize us as necess- as necessary in order to understand the ultimate truth but also the the drawback to that right is that um we're only created for a particular purpose and that purpose really has nothing to do with us we're we're a cog in a giant machine there's there's something deeply ironic about it though which is that no one in the universe except for earthlings at the end of this process actually know their purpose the only people who are coming away with an understanding of it are the people who are part of that machine. So, Fausto, what do you think, as a, as a hitchhiker's virgin, what do you think of the answer? Well, I was very curious as to what the question was. And um, part of this hit home in that when I was in third grade, I took a multiplication test and it was the final multiplication test of the year. And there were a hundred questions on the test. And the one question I missed was what is six times seven? I wrote 41 instead of 42. So when I saw that the answer was 42, I sort of had a flashback to that moment and clearly powerful and searing since I've still remembered it many, many years since. That uh, that must have been traumatic. It was very traumatic, I will have you know. So wait, Fausto, what do you think the question actually is? Can you give us your rundown of like what you think the question might be? So I've come up with a, with maybe other than what is six times seven, could also be referring to the U.S. presidents, because I think it would be cool if the ultimate question were something revolving around Bill Clinton him being the 42nd president of the U.S. Would, would it? I like that. Otherwise, I'm not, I'm not really sure, and I'm very interested in what the, the question is, but I'm, I'm postponing putting deep thought into something. Um, <laughs> deep thought. Yes, because Douglas Adams has a way of um, upsetting all of my preordained plans for what is going to be in the next chapter. So at this point, I'm withholding all judgment and thought of what the West, what the question is. You'll be, you're going to, really... you're going to be disappointed. Which is fine. I was already disappointed when I wrote down six times seven equals 41. So I'm, I'm prepared to be disappointed. I think it would have been really great if the question turned out to be like, how many presidents does it take before one who can play sick riffs on the saxophone? This is true. You know, 42 also comes back a few more times in the book. So you get the answer to the question eventually. But like in in the last book also, um, 
it's the street address of of the club that the book revolves around, which I'm not going to spoil the name of because it's relevant to things. Um, That's right. Um, and of course, you're now that you know you're you're going to see this as a as a nerd in joke, literally everywhere on the internet. Yeah, I have, and I. I was always wondering where 42 came from, and I'm glad I finally have the answer to that. But I have definitely already seen this everywhere. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just, on the spur of the moment uh, earlier this week, watched Iron Man 3 and the, the suit model that gets used. The most advanced version of the Iron Man suit for that movie is the Mark 42. Um, I feel like we should catch Fausto up on some of the apocrypha around 42. Oh, uh, okay. What, uh, what, where do we start? Well, so I want to, I want to start with a couple Douglas Adams quotes. Um, so the one from 1993 that I think is the most relevant is, um, uh, the answer to this is very simple. It was a joke. It had to be a number, an ordinary smallish number. And I chose that one. Binary representations, base 13, Tibetan monks are all complete nonsense. Because everyone had their own, you know, theory as to why he picked 42. Mm -hmm. Um, I sat at my desk, stared into the garden, and thought, 42 will do. I typed it out, end of story. And then there's another quote where he says that it was a completely ordinary number, a number not just divisible by two, but also six and seven. In fact, it's the sort of number that you could, without any fear, introduce to your parents. (laughs) Uh, that's a good line. It is a good line. And then there's this, this is so there's one, one other story. Um, he explained in more detail in an interview, um, having decided it should be a number, he tried to think what an ordinary number should be. He ruled out non-integers. Then he remembered having worked as a prop borrower for John Cleese on his video arts training videos. Hmm. Cleese needed a funny number for the punchline to a sketch involving a bank teller himself and a customer, Tim Brooke Taylor. Adams believed that the number Cleese came up with was 42, and he decided to use it. Hmm. Huh. I mean, it's not. It's got a. It's got a bounce to it as a word. It does have a. It does have a, a harmonious representation in binary. I remember. Yeah, it's one zero one zero one zero. Yeah. I don't know that off wow. the top of my head. I'm not that big a nerd. I'm just on the the Wikipedia page for 42. Oh, of course, there's a Wikipedia page for 42. But there, yeah, there are people who do things like go digging through the more boring parts of the Bible looking for that number, which is a curiously silly thing to do given the source material. Yeah, that's a little, that's that's not, of all the places to go looking for Douglas Adams. Right. That's not, that seems wrong. Yes. I, sorry, I'm I'm now I'm now reading through the Wikipedia page on 42. Somebody wrote a book. Somebody wrote a whole book about justifications for the use of the number 42 as the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Did it sell well for them? Uh, I I don't know. It was published in 2011. There's a whole section on the use of the number in Lu- the works of Lewis Carroll, which is sort of appropriate. I feel like okay, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, mm-hmm. but. The thing about Alice is that if you go sufficiently insane, you can project anything you want to onto Alice. Who is Alice? Alice in in Wonderland and Alice through the Looking Glass. Yes, what about her? 
What does that have anything to do with anything? It, you, the number 42 comes up multiple times. I'm uh, Apparently, the, I had oh, forgotten sorry. this. The Red Queen's Court has, has at least 42 rules, the 42nd of which is all persons more than a mile high to leave the court. Also, there's 42 illustrations in the original Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Which is obviously just a meaningless coincidence. Yeah. Is it, though? Is it? Do, 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 do. Oh, God. So we've been we've been with the uh, core characters of the of the novel for quite a while now, and I thought it would be entertaining to try to try to place them on the the jock nerd prep goth uh, alignment axes, or at least to try to get some general sense of them. So, Jeremy, can you describe? where you placed each of the main characters thus far. For full context, this is um, a system of describing personalities or at least character character behaviors uh, by placing, placing people on a Cartesian plane defined by axes that run from prep to goth as the x-axis and nerd to jock as the y-axis. So I'm proposing that uh, that Arthur Dent is is pretty deep in both nerd and prep. Uh, that Ford is in fact right at the middle of the plane of the of the coordinate system. He's balanced prep goth, balanced jock nerd. Um, Trillian, I think, is probably more uh, goth than prep, and and pretty solidly nerd. Um, Zaphod, I places both high jock and high goth. You don't think goth immediately, but he's really into body modification, and that seems pretty gothy to me. And then Marvin is obviously just full goth, full nerd. I, for the most part, agree with this sort of categorization of the five main characters thus far, except, as I was telling Jeremy earlier, I believe that goth should be stricken from this two-by-two way of describing people, and the word jock should be replaced by a numerical indicator uh, indicating how much a character aligns with the personality types and sort of the overall vivance of the character Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher's a person. Sorry, I meant uh, the nanny. That's what I meant. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because I think that uh, Zephod Beeblebutt, or whatever his last name is, um, he's very flashy. He's always the center of attention. Uh, Mysterious is always something interesting going on in in his life, and we don't quite know, sort of, it's hard to pin him down personality-wise. And he seems to be like he would be a loud character in real life. So I, I would put him on a nerd to the nanny axis. I think, okay, so my my contention is that one of the ways to solve your problem would be to have a z-axis for this, which is chaotic and lawful, right? Because what you're really saying is he might be a goth jock, but he's a chaotic goth jock. I feel like goth is is kind of chaos-aligned already, but... 
Oh, I firmly disagree. It's very easy to be lawful goth. Hmm. Um, let me let me let me back this up. Um, MCR in Black Parade era is lawful goth. Danger Days MCR is chaotic goth. I I understood literally none of that. That makes me so angry. <laughs> I don't understand any of that, but my contribution will be that in the early 2000s in Mexico City, there was a big public riot between the goths and the emos, and it's the Buddhists that had to interrupt the two sides and bring about peace, and that's all I got. Holy shit, is that real? Yes, it was a very violent protest down in Mexico City. There's an amazing YouTube video documenting this. And halfway through the video, these random, what appear to be Buddhist monks, I'm not quite sure what they were, but they appear to be something akin to Buddhist monks, appear out of nowhere in traditional garb, and they sort of try to mend fences between the two sides. It was very violent. Oh, my God. There's all these articles in, like, Time magazine about this. Oh. And see, all I can think of is the classic Onion headline. Which one? Gay wads, dork wads, sign historic wad accord. <laughs> well, there's a name for this podcast. It's I, it's it's a fair wow. cop gov. Love it. I'm sorry. I I'd like to be making better funny jokes about this, but someone is trying to force feed me updates on the Stormy Daniels interview, which is <sighs> screaming right now. It's, it's, I'm currently reading a New York Times article about it, and wow. Still have not opened yeah. Twitter. Still don't want to hear about it. Why am I okay. the one telling you two to shut up about Donald Trump? Pivot back. Pivot back. Pivot back. Pivot back. What, okay. what does your alignment so, look like, Colin? So we were talking about this a little bit in in um, what, what we very uncomfortably refer, what we uncomfortably refer to as foreplay for this episode. Um so I, I, I think that having jock and nerd on opposite axes doesn't actually work for a lot of reasons. Um, the first reason is Elon Musk. And the second reason, which is a broader point about Elon Musk, is that there are so many jock nerds in society now because uh, being a nerd is no longer a fringe thing. Being a nerd is now the powerful in-group that makes all the money and, unfortunately drives all the cultural zeitgeist culture uh yeah so as i as i as i said when you said that um i mean the 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 jock nerd dichotomy is a uh, is really about a cultural power imbalance that has a that um that made sense back in the days of the breakfast club but is yeah very much not current which is interesting, though, because this meme isn't a Breakfast Club era meme. This is a very recent. I mean, this is like the last year that that this 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 chart was proposed. Right, but the the also, but the jock prep nerd goth. Yeah, it's very much. It's a Breakfast Club alignment yeah. chart. Um, I will also say that it is possible to be a prep or goth jock nerd. For example, Elon Musk is sad all the time. He is a goth jock nerd. In contrast. Um, shitty little garbage man. What's his name? Um, Peter Thiel. Nope. 
He's a shitty little garbage man, but he's not what I'm thinking You're of. You're going to have to be more specific, uh, Colin. Please don't take out my Peter Thiel dig in post. I hate Peter Thiel. Um, no, the, the HIV medicine one. Um, the one who went to jail. Martin Shkreli. Thank you. Martin Shkreli. What a, what a hateable name. <laughs> what yeah. a hateable guy. Fuck that guy. He is a prep jock nerd. Why is he a jock? Uh, he bought a Wu-Tang album so no one else could have it. That that's, doesn't make him a jock. No, that's peak jock. That's the most jock thing imaginable. Disagree. Well, how, what would you call it? It's you not... see that little mouse on your stupid axis? He's a little mouse. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but... So I, I guess that's a segue to my chart. Yeah, let's go to the chart. <laughs> All right, so what I've done is I've put Ford at the center because I don't feel like Ford is anything. And and my take on this is that we never really see Ford not dealing with things burning down until, like, a few books in. Like, in a restaurant, he's kind of relaxed. He kind of has a personality going on. But most of the time, Ford is just troubleshooting the awful things happening in his life and everyone around him being mad at him for those awful things happening to him. Accurate. Arthur... I agree. It's kind of nerd prep. I put him a little bit closer to the center because Arthur is not particularly in the business of knowing things or being smart. That is a fair point. He's He kind of grunts at things, and he likes to just kind of walk around his house without pants on and grunt at things. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> The I'm one sneezer. sneezes. I, I feel like we need to turn on video so I don't miss it when your head explodes, Fausto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so Fausto died. Rest in pieces. Um, I agree that that um, Zephod is jock, but I don't think he's very goth. I, I I see the case for body modification, but he's also. So rich and so uptight, I feel like that puts him solidly in the middle of prep and goth. And then I'd like to flush out a couple others before we get to Trillion. Okay. Because Trillion to me is, is an interesting one. I agree that Marvin is, of course, peak goth nerd. I think we can also put Slarda Bartfast there, goth nerd. Yeah. Pretty easy. Um, the Vogons. Peak prep jock. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, no arguments there. They're, they're making the rules. They're following the rules. They're being a dick about the rules. Um, the mice. The in the 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 mice as mice or the mice as hyper intelligent pan dimensional beings who built the earth to answer the to find the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. The latter. Right. I would contend to you that they are jock nerds. They are doing with Earth what Elon Musk is doing with Mars. They have unlimited power, and they are too smart and too sneaky, and they don't give a shit who they hurt. Checks out. Jock nerd. But who are they hurting? They don't seem to be hurting anybody. Well, they're about to ask Arthur if they can steal his brain. So Okay, stop ruining plot points for me. It's a small spoiler. It's literally the thing that happens on, like, the next page. Also, they're just kind of assholes about everything from this point on. 
Now, okay, Trillion is the one that I most disagreed with you. Uh-huh. Why would you put Trillion as goth? Uh, I think it was, I think it was the uh, frustrated ex-academic vibe I got off her. That's fair. Agreed. But like, I feel like... If you, with a degree in math and another in physics, it was either that or the dole cued on Monday is, is pretty gothy. I think if you have one PhD, it's still possible to be a goth. I think two or more PhDs makes you a prep. We don't know that they're both PhDs. I think I think it's strongly implied that she has. It does kind two of. PhDs. It is kind of, isn't it? I'm pretty sure she has two PhDs. Hey, I, if it's not explicitly stated in there, um, it's I'm pretty sure stated in in mostly harmless. Okay. She wouldn't she be? Wouldn't she be even more disillusioned with academia with two, making her that much more of a goth? I mean, that I don't see your I don't see your argument as furthering your claim, as opposed to furthering Jeremy's point. There's a counterpoint to this, which is that what we could do is we could say that mm, Trillion is. Is there? A, are we? Are we coming I, up with a horseshoe theory for both of these axes? A little bit, but also a horseshoe theory for Trillian. Trillian is a goth nerd, and Trisha McMillan is a prep nerd. Oh, oh, deep. Split personalities. Hmm. I'll allow it. So going into space is her goth phase. Uh Uh-huh. Going into space with a crazy man with two heads, three arms, and 15 fingers. Is pretty gothy. It's pretty gothy. But I'd also like to propose that I don't think this is the most useful alignment chart for this book. And so I've put another alignment chart in the document. Where is it? It's below below the other one in the document. This is an alignment based on lawful, neutral, or chaotic as one axis and hungry, tired, and horny as the other axis. Yes, and it it needs to be said that it's in that order. So it's, it's in that order. So horny and hungry are diametric opposites and tired is the middle ground. Uh Uh-huh. So what I would propose to you is that this is a much more useful axis for categorizing anything in the Hitchhiker's universe. May I present my case? Okay, well, present your alignments. Arthur at the start of the book, lawful tired. Arthur continually throughout this book and the remaining books is on the edge between lawful tired and lawful hungry. Checks out. Zaphod Beeblebrox, I feel like it's pretty obvious, right? Chaotic Horny? Chaotic Horny. Trillion, I I think is hard because we never see Trillion indulge any vices. But she went into space with a guy with 15 fingers and two heads. That feels to me somewhere on the horny axis. You, if you leave... A- chaotic Hungry... Probably probably have, neutral horny. Neutral horny. I could go for that. She's, she have, seems yikes. She seems to be lawful by default, but in association with Zaphod, she's going along with Grand Theft Spaceship. Yeah, she's she's verging on chaotic by proxy. Right. Now, Ford is a tough one, but I would contend to you that Ford is the hardest alignment to achieve. Chaotic tired. 
There's just so much shit going wrong around him at any given moment that he's always dealing with the backlog of shit, which is making him handle the current shit much worse. I would agree. Yeah. And he's just five seconds away from dying at any given second. And he's so sick of it. Um... I rest my case. Ford is Ford is really the character, the Douglas Adams analog character, isn't he? He's basically a magazine writer on Deadline. That is correct. Way, way, way over Deadline. Ford is. The, I mean, well, that's the entire plot right. of um, of mostly harmless. Right. Right. Um. So where does the robot where does the robot fit in? I think Marvin is lawful tired, right? Yeah. And and you know what? If you want to take it even a step further, I would say the mice are chaotic hungry. Hmm. Hunger hunger can be many things. They're hungry for power. And also there's a whole scene where they're just gorging on food. Right. Thank you for your time. (laughs) Yeah, I have have no real objections to this scheme, I think. My only objection is that of the nine options, we've seemed to use around half of them. I think I think neutral tired is boring. I don't think it's an interesting space to be in. Um, I think that we don't see peak chaotic hungry until restaurant at the end of the universe, which is literally just the concept of chaotic hungry as a book. <laughs> um, chaotic hungry in space. Um, again, lawful horny. It's a rare combination, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe lawful horny is Arthur having a kid. Eventually. Yeah. Maybe. And then not handling it well. But I, I think that there's certainly a covariance between the tired and the hungry axis mm-hmm. and lawful and horny and chaotic. I think it, I think it almost partitions too well. Like, the thing about jock nerd goth prep is that you can kind of fight it out. Well, and it's, it's a qualitative axis, or it's a, it's a quantitative axis rather than qualitative boxes. That's true. Can you, can you map them together? Can it be done? Is there a mapping between the axes? Is there some multidimensional space? Uh, probably not, because chaotic to lawful is, is really like a z-axis to the... Not quite a perpendicular mm-hmm. z-axis, but a z-axis to the jock nerd prep goth plane. So is this? What if it's a four-dimensional space? Well, we've only used three. Well, but but I I think there's I think there's some utility in tired versus hungry. Oh, I see. Because because that's kind of Arthur's character arc, right? Is he moves from tired to hungry? <laughs> Like, over the course of five books, he goes from man who doesn't want to get out of bed to man who is making sandwiches. That is absolutely true. That is, strictly speaking, his narrative arc. I have a question. Now that I said that, I actually have a question. Mm-hmm. 
Marvin's brain isn't actually the size of a planet, right? No, and that one of the more annoying design features, one of the few annoying design choices in the in the 2005 movie is their their attempt to literalize that. Wait, did they do that? That was that's the reason the robot has such a huge head. Right, but it's not the size of a planet. It's she's just a big head. Right, just, that's what's so dumb about it. They like, took they took that line and turned it into a design that is still not an accurate description. Okay, but so I uh, I I guess I guess this is nitpicky, but can robots lie? Are are, are the robots in this universe following? Asimov's rules. Plainly not. Okay. Isn't hyperbole a form of lying? Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, uh, an Asimov robot would see it as one. As, as a form of lying. But do we have any other evidence that they're not following Asimov rules? Well, so, Marvin does seem I mean, they're, to... They're Marvin does seem to follow <laughs> human orders... Eventually, um, but we've got lots of examples of killer robots in the books. Hang on, I'm going to recap Asimov's rules because I don't even know them that well. Oh. Okay, so first rule is cannot injure or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Bingo. The second is must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where it would conflict with the first law. And the third is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. There's nothing in there that says that a robot can't lie. Hold on. Does does the computer system on Magrathia constitute a robot? Uh, it very plainly tried to kill them. Isn't it an answering machine mostly? It would be a robot in, in Asimov's universe, but... Um, I feel like it could take orders, but it... Re- so there's, no. there's, a couple of, there's a couple of complicating wrinkles. I think you're right that robots can lie in the Asimov stories, because I'm pretty sure I remember one that revolves around a robot lying to uh, Susan Calvin, the, the roboticist who's in the center of many of the stories, because it's trying not to hurt her feelings for some reason. It decides that making her feel bad is is a violation of the first law. And the other wrinkle is that eventually in Asimov's timeline, a robot derives the zeroth law of robotics, which is that humanity has... A robot may not, uh, through action or inaction, allow humanity to come to harm, uh, which gives them an excuse to do a bunch of stuff that violates the other laws. Wait, how's is, is that just the plot of iRobot though? Uh, I forget which which novel it comes up in. Okay. But wait, why is why is um why is adhering to the zeroth law allow them to violate the first, second, and third law? Because the laws are the laws are sequential in in priority. So the, the right. earlier in the sequence it is, the more it overrides the others. Right. So. So the first law, in the original formulation, the for, first law has nothing that overrides it. But the second law is actually right. a robot may not, must uh, follow any order given to it by a human except where that order would contradict the first law. Yeah. And, thir- the, so, and the third law, uh, a robot must protect itself except where that, act, where that would contradict the second or the first law. When you add the zeroth, ze- law zero at the front of the sequence... 
The first becomes a robot may not injure a human or through an action allow a human to come to harm unless that contradicts the zeroth law, uh, which it would harm the greater good for the human race. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah on board. So, on so board. a robot, a robot can in fact uh, kill one person on the trolley tracks to save a group of two or more people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's alarming. Yeah. But only with the zeroth law protocol yes. upgrade. What yeah. would Marvin do in the trolley problem? Would he just complain and do nothing? I'm gonna probably. go with yeah. Although I I he would probably do what he was told. So you... a, an overriding feature of Marvin's personality seems to be both lack of initiative and willingness to eventually do what he's told to do. Do you think that Marvin feels an impetus to protect his friends? I'm not sure he treats them as friends. Yeah, I'm not. Well, it depends who. Yeah, who who are we calling his friends? It depends also on movie versus book. So, like, so Trillian and Marvin have kind of a special relationship, right? I mean, I think Trillian thinks they do. That's true. Maybe Trillian projects the most humanity onto. The, the depressed toaster oven. Um, but I don't know. So in, in the movie, it's strongly... Okay, there's, we're, we're in spoiler territory, so I'm going to edit out the spoilers. But oh. Mar- Marvin does a nice, helpful thing eventually. And he, he sort of complains. and he's basically, he, he basically writes it off as just being... basically being difficult for the sake of being difficult. But... It's sort of implied that he did a nice thing to save his friends. I think much more heavily so in the movie, right? I do not remember this, which is embarrassing. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? No. Um, okay. The most clear-cut so, example I know of Marvin saving anybody comes in the next book. Okay, well, actually, so what happens in the movie is different than what's in the book. In the book, it revolves around him plugging into something. Oh, you, right. Okay, gotcha. But in, in the movie, he just knocks out a bunch of Vogons for reasons very unclear, because the Vogons are on second Earth. Huh. I had completely it, forgotten that. Yeah, it's a little bit weird and confusing. He knocks them on... I don't know. So is, is Marvin... Does Mar, is Marvin... Does he care? <laughs> Can you be depressed if you don't care? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> now that's some good podcasting right there. <laughs> that's fucking Scrubs episode level podcasting. <laughs> it, uh, okay. I mean, that, that, that literally sounds like the end of an episode of Scrubs. You realize. Uh, yes. It's been a while since I've watched Scrubs, walked, but sure. As I walked out of the hospital, <laughs> I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, depression makes you not care, but at the end of the day, maybe, can you really be depressed if you don't care? Maybe in our own way, we're all caring about things. <laughs> <laughs>
The book club at the end of the universe is produced by shouting into our computers. No one is paying us to do this, and we're pretty sure we don't want anyone to anyway. You can find us on Twitter at OhNoNotAgainPod, or online in general at MissingPresumedFed.tumblr.com. Join us next time, in some Thursday in the future, when we'll discuss the remainder of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the, the final episode of this series of the podcast. Until then, I'm Jeremy Yoder, Prep Nerd. I'm Colin Carlson, Chaotic Tired Goth Jock Nerd. I'm Fausto Bustos, Horny Horny Nanny Prep. <laughs> Okay, let's give it one more one more shot on 42. Three, two, Three, one. Two, one. 42. 42. 42. <sighs> hey, Jeremy. Uh-huh. You know how you edit out all the bad parts? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry, Colin. None of this will see Thank the light of day. Thank you. <laughs> It's just so goddamn bizarre to me that there's anyone out there in this world who would watch the entirety of that movie and be like, you know what would be a hallmark of a healthy relationship and is the note that I want to start my marriage on? That cheating scene from that cheating movie about cheating. <laughs> so that's me, and that's my love actually. Well... How do you know? Sometimes either of you. Sometimes I am remarkably stupid. <laughs> okay. How do you have so many degrees? <laughs> One, two, five. <laughs> Guys, we're we're all gay. We didn't do the sports thing of everybody shouting together collectively and at the same time. I think we should just go on to the next sentence. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I'm very sweaty under these headphones. That's not good at all. Wait, happened? The audio fizzled out on my end for 20 seconds. I didn't no, hear you. No, that, that was... <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? Are you laughing was, at me? I... That wasn't a technical glitch. That was me and Jeremy sitting in silence. <laughs> hey, Jeremy. Uh-huh. If there's a part of my brain that's walled off from even myself, I'm not going to unlock it for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch. Well, I thought I'd try, Colin. Dead air. This is the dead air song. (laughs) We don't anything interesting to say oh boy